Okay, so I think we're done with all the housekeeping stuff, and I will turn it over to Cindy. No, you're So, um, hi everyone. Outside, there obviously the obvious uh, reason that you would make a demand for collateral uh, is you have a claim or you feel like a loss is imminent, and the surety has a right, uh, both under common law and under their contractual indemnity agreement. Uh, to be exonerated and indemnified by their principal and indemnitors. Uh, so, of course, the obvious reason is that you actually want to get the, the collateral in hand uh, to be able to reimburse yourself for that loss. And while that's great um, and, and everybody wants that collateral demand to be satisfied, there are also other strategic reasons why you might want to make a collateral demand even when you know based upon your dealings with this principal or because you've seen their financials that the likelihood of them being able to meet your collateral demand uh, with cash or other collateral uh, is fairly remote. Um, for example, um, let's say there are, there's either a performance or payment bond claim pending and you've conducted your independent investigation of that claim and you believe the claim should be settled, but your principal or the indemnitors uh, want you to keep fighting that claim to, to the bitter end. Uh, in a similar vein, uh, even if your principal or indemnitors aren't really giving you feedback uh, on the claim and you're sort of out there on your own resolving or attempting to resolve that claim, um, you just get a sense that you know that at the end of the day, after you've resolved that claim and there's a demand um, for indemnity, that your principal or indemnitors or perhaps their attorneys um, are going to come back and sort of second guess every decision that you made along the way, whether it was to settle it or, or trial strategy. And um, a, a way to circumvent or, or hopefully eliminate some of those problems down the road is to make that demand for collateral um, and basically say, you know, if, if you want the surety to take this certain strategy they, that you are saying, you know, you got to put up the money, you got to finance uh, the pursuit or defense of this claim, uh, kind of a put up or shut up thing. And if you, you know, if you want the surety to gamble, then you need to let the surety gamble with your money and not the surety's money. Uh, because if the principal is not willing to take that bet by using its own money, um, why should the surety? Uh, and there are many cases, and, and we certainly don't have the time in the context of this 30-minute uh, uh, conference to, to go through the case law, but I would direct you to uh, the Sureties Indemnity Agreement book, the second edition, has a, has a lot of good cases cited. With it essentially will say that, you know, it, unless you've made a specific request as the principal for the surety to litigate, and you've also, in conjunction with that, honored the surety's collateral demand, then the surety's free to go and settle, and the indemnitors are going to be liable for any um, expenses that the surety has incurred. Now, always with this, you've got to understand that, um, you know, you, you're always going to have an obligation that that settlement or how you've resolved it's in good faith, but this gives you a leg up where you've, you've made that collateral demand and it hasn't been responded to. Um, another similar thing is when you're talking about doing that with the principals, if the principal has affirmative claims that they think are wonderful and they're going to make the surety whole, uh, and you want to be able to resolve those claims uh, with an obligee 
particularly, and you know, the principal's gunning for you to, you know, hold out and, and come up with a better thing, and you're trying to settle it. Again, the the unfulfilled collateral demand gives you that leverage to uh, to settle that claim, and then not, you know, not have it on the flip side, have them fighting on the indemnity that you shouldn't have settled for the amount you did. Uh, there's some other reasons too, like if if they want you to you know, they're saying they want you to tender the defense to them and you're just not quite comfortable with either who they want to use or you just don't have a good feeling about tendering in that case, but you don't want to have an issue on the back end where they're claiming that, you know, they shouldn't have to be paying for the attorney's fees that the surety hired their own attorney for. Again, that collateral demand that gets uh, unfulfilled uh, gives you higher standing to sort of contest that, that defense. The other thing is an unfulfilled collateral demand, you know, constitutes a breach under the indemnity agreement and can trigger all kinds of other rights, uh, like the attorney in fact provision where you might be able to take other steps and, and rights under your indemnity agreement to, um, to minimize your losses and, and acquire maybe assets and other things you can do to try and control the loss. I'm going to turn it back over to Mike. Okay. So... I want to spend a little few minutes talking about the mechanics. You know, you've got you've got made the decision you want to make the demand for collateral, and um, you know, a couple of issues to talk about on the mechanics side of the fence. One is, you know, this is basic, and everybody, you know, these experienced people certainly know to do this. But you know, I, it would be remiss not to say it. You know, you got to follow the requirements of your GAI in making the demand for collateral. Um, you know, you'd be surprised how many times it's, it's not. You really have to go look at the provision and make sure that you're following exactly what's required. So, you know, if the provision says that, uh, you know, the, the collateral can be demanded if you've set a reserve, well, you've got to set a reserve first. If you don't, you're going to be running into the issue of whether you met the condition precedent to being able to make the demand, et cetera. So, you know, a lot of the provisions out there vary from company to company, and, and you just have to read and see what you've got. Um, if there's notice required, written notice required for the demand, or, you know, you've got to send it to who, you know, the GAI says it has to go to, and you've got to send it in the manner that's required. If it says certified mail, send it certified mail. Um, if you intend to make the demand uh, upon the principal and the individual indemnitors, then you need to make sure that the notice or the demand is going to those individuals as well, you know, especially the, the individual who may be not, not involved with the business. You want to make sure that they're getting their notice and their demand for the collateral because later if they don't provide it and you want to sue them, uh, you want to make sure that you complied with your GAI. Uh, same thing with any time frames. If you've got to give them a period of time before uh, you know, once you make the demand in order to satisfy it, then you've got to allow that time frame to pass before you take the next steps. I mean, basically, you know, following the GAI, you just want to um, not give the indemnitor's counsel or the courts any reasons or grounds, you know, to claim that the surety was acting improperly or that the surety didn't follow its own agreement. So um, that's the first sort of mechanic issue. The next one would be, you know, the recommendation to use a collateral agreement. The, the GAI typically, when they have a provision for, for collateral demand, they typically um, don't have very much detail or any kind of, um, you know, um, uh, broad 
description of how it's going to do, how you're going to do it, what's going to be done. It typically just gives you the right and, and, and creates the obligation. So then there's a lot of questions, and we've had we've had numerous cases. Cindy, you remember the one uh, we had the bankruptcy where they they wanted the collateral, and we ended up uh, filing uh, you know an opposition to the motion to turn over the collateral, and it, it was a, a big drawn out battle, and there was no collateral agreement to really set forth the rights of the party. So it, it can create uh, fertile grounds for disputes. If you had the collateral agreement, you can talk about in that document. You know, identify the collateral, what it is, what, what's the purpose of the collateral, what are you holding it for, what are you going to use it for if the, if the need arises. You can, certainly you're going to use it to reimburse yourself if you pay a loss, but, you know, you may also want to use it to pay your attorney's fees or you may want to use it to pay unpaid bond premiums, things like that. So you've got to set that out in your agreement and um, uh, also you'd, you'd want to talk about how the collateral will be held, how it would be used, how it would be sold. If there's going to be insurance on the collateral, who's going to pay the premiums? Are there going to be inspection rights? Uh, what happens to any interest or income that's generated from the collateral? All of that would be something that you put into the collateral agreement, as well as you know when is the collateral going to be released? We've had numerous disputes over over you know the 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 the, the principal and the indemnitors claiming that you know hey you're holding all this money we want it released and the surety said well we still got liability over here. So, uh, you know, putting that clearly in an agreement goes a long way to heading off uh, future disputes. So uh, the next thing would be, from a mechanic side, you've, you've made the collateral demand, you've got the collateral now, you've got to make sure you properly perfect your interest in the collateral so that it's, it's protected and preserved while you're holding it, particularly if you're getting the collateral up front before the bonds are issued, you may be holding that for years. And you've got to make sure that, uh, that you've done what's necessary to, to perfect your security interest in that collateral. And, and depending on the type of collateral, which Cindy will talk about in, in a few minutes, you know, sometimes you've got to do more than just filing the UCC1 uh, financing statement. Um, you've got to uh, look at the type of collateral that you have and then figure out what needs to be done. So, for instance, cash. If cash is your collateral, you perfect your interest in that by possession. Maybe your collateral is bank accounts. Will you perfect your interest in that by control of the bank account? What if you have certificates of deposit as your type of collateral? Then that becomes complicated. It depends on the type of, of uh, certificate of deposit. Under the UCC, you've got, um, depending on whether it's certificated or uncertificated, it could be treated like a, a regular deposit account or it could be treated like an instrument. It really depends on the nature of the, of the CD. Uh, if you've got vehicles or movable equipment, sometimes you've got to get, you've got to secure your interest by by having title to the to the vehicle. Real property, of course, you got to perfect in, in uh, the land records. So that's uh, that's one aspect of the collateral demand is making sure you're, you know, following these mechanics. Now, what if the issue is you don't have a collateral demand provision in your GAI? And I just read one. Uh, the other day that didn't have one, and uh, of course the the commercial side of the house they they tend to use these little tiny uh, short form indemnity agreements which barely have anything in them. But you know where where are you if you don't have that demand? I mean initially you've got sort of the the commercial leverage. You know they want the bonds. If you want the bonds, you're gonna you're gonna have to give us some collateral. You can certainly demand that up front or. Maybe even midstream, if they want additional bonds for other projects, you can you can request collateral then. I think it's common on the commercial side to get that collateral up front or to increase it as time goes on 
And, and I think the commercial leverage is just, hey, you want us to continue the bonds, then you've got to give us the collateral we want. If you don't, we'll cancel them. Um, now, you can't do that on the contract side of the house because once you've issued that bond for a project, you're kind of stuck there. But um, that's something certainly uh, the economic leverage is out there as a, as a tool, even if you don't have a provision in your GAI for, for collateral demand. Now, the other thing that can be used is the ancient common law rights of quiatimate and exoneration. Um, and these, these are rights that uh, have been around a long time and, and are, have been you know, long recognized and held as rights, regardless of what your GAI says or doesn't say, these rights are out there and could be used in the right circumstances. And, you know, I, quia timid is basically is Latin, uh, so I'm told, because I don't know Latin at all, uh, <laughs> translates into because one fears or apprehends. It's, uh, it's part of a, a type of writ that was known in the common law as the brevia anticipata or writs of prevention. So basically, if the surety reasonably, reasonably believes that it may suffer a loss in the future because the principal is likely to default, then the surety can assert the right of quiatimit to be placed in funds or collateral before the surety actually incurs a loss. So it's, it's essentially the common law version of a, of a collateral demand provision in your agreement. Typically, the elements are, you know, that you have to show that there is a debt of the principal that, it, that is, will become due or likely to become due that the principal will be liable for that debt and that absent the relief, the surety would be prejudiced and that there's no act adequate remedy at law. Exoneration is very similar to quiatimate and it's, it's really primary difference between the two is one of timing. The exoneration right can be raised after the, the debt of the principal has matured and become due and before the surety has paid the surety can demand uh, the common law right of exoneration to have the uh, principal pay the debt out of its own funds before the surety has to. And that was something that, that was recognized uh, at the common law. And again, the rationale here is that the principal is primarily obligated for the debt and the surety should be allowed to force the principal to pay its debt out of its own funds before the surety is required to do so. Um, for a further discussion of these rights, um, take a look at the ABA uh, FSLC book, The Sureties Indemnity Agreement, Law and Practice, Second Edition, Chapter 6. And then there's a footnote there, footnote 6 in that chapter, which also calls out uh, a, a number of other sources, books and chapters, uh, that kind of thing. And then also the Restatement Third of Suretyship and Guarantee, Section 21, also um, discusses the, the right of uh, quiatim and exoneration and some of the comments there um, explain those rights in, in, in greater detail as well. So uh, back to Cindy. Yes, as Mike mentioned, um, there's different types of collateral and how you get it and, and what you get may vary on the commercial side versus the contract surety side. Uh, you know, commercial bonds, they are issued, um, they're continuous, generally they're continuous in nature, they're, they're subject to most times annual renewal, and there is an option in those bond forms typically or in the statute from which they are based to cancel them. Um, oftentimes on the commercial side, the, the collateral is requested up front uh, before any bonds are issued at all, but uh, there are also many cases where either an increase is made in the collateral demand or an initial collateral demand is made um, when the surety's underwriting side is sort of evaluating the principal's financial condition and sees that um, 
you know, things are starting to turn uh, negative and uh, the surety wants more protection uh, if it's going to continue to keep their bonds in place. So there is certainly some leverage um, on the commercial side to sort of uh, get the collateral up front or get the collateral when you need that may not exist on the, on the uh, contract surety side. Um, as we know, once you issue a contract surety bond, you're, you know, you're pretty much stuck with it. There's no way to cancel those. Um, but on the, on the positive side, on the, on the contract surety side, you know, there are contract funds where you never have that uh, on the commercial side. So that is one source of collateral that we, you know, is a very important part, but we don't necessarily think of it in terms of calling it collateral, but certainly those contract funds um, uh, are the surety's collateral. So uh, unfortunately, though, on contract surety side, we tend to really only tend to make collateral demands after there's already claims and probably when the principal uh, least likely has the means to, to honor those demands. Um, there are all types of collateral um, out there that can be requested. Um, as Mike mentioned, there's cash, deposit accounts, letters of credit, um, liens on real property, liens on equipment, uh, liens on vehicles, uh, personal property. I've seen them for you know jewelry, um, pretty much anything that has value. There's a way to um, make that your collateral. Uh, but every single different type of collateral is different, and so you have to go back often to the UCC uh, in various other places, but that's the most frequent in terms of anything personal property of how to get the, it secured so that you have um, secure your priority uh, stake in that collateral. So what, what do you want to do? I mean, first of all, the most obvious thing is you can only get the collateral that's available. So if, if your principal doesn't have cash assets to put up as collateral, then that's not really going to be an option. Uh, what best retains its value is something important to uh, consider. Uh, what is the one that's the most, uh, what's easiest to uh, secure your priority interest. If you have to go through a whole lot of trouble to store something, uh, to insure it, to uh, keep possession of it, uh, file documents to secure it, you know, then that builds in an expense that you have to factor in. Lastly, which one of those is the most, uh, the easiest to liquidate? So you have all those sort of factors that go into what collateral you're willing to take um, and maintain. Um, you know, obviously, real estate has always been a big thing and, and has historically been a big thing to, to use, but we've obviously found ever since about 2008 that uh, real estate may not be that, that uh, great piece of collateral that we once thought it was because um, it's not always appreciating in value. Um, you know, we've seen some amazing pieces of property. I've seen um, that was the surety's collateral, uh, but we were second or third uh, lien holder on the property, and all it really amounts to at this point is um, a very pretty photo on the screen and not really helping us much. And I think there's some people on the call who probably know exactly what pieces of property I'm talking about in a few cases. Um, you've got things like... Uh, you know, very expensive boats, uh, very high-end antique vehicles. All those things look great on paper, but we all know they, A, they decline in value, 
very rapidly and um, their value can be very subjective based upon market circumstances. Things like artwork, same thing. You're talking about something um, that the value is sort of in the eye of the beholder and is very driven by, by the current state of the market. Um, one of the things, uh, letters of credit, uh, very valuable one to have, much easier to, you know, don't have all the, the upfront expenses. You have to be very careful with them in just the sense that you have to read them because depending on how they're worded, they are ones that may be written with an expiration date. You're supposed to get notice uh, if they're ready to expire, but that's certainly not something where you had a letter of credit in hand and it expired before it got called upon and then you're left without any collateral at all. Um, some of the other things that you have to think about is with uh, getting security interest in equipment. Uh, I think a lot of us have been in one of those situations where you've gone to a principal's office and uh, there's all these equipment and fixtures and all this stuff that you've perfected your UCC security interest in, you're feeling very good about it, that you've got all these assets as collateral. You may even have the first position in it. Um, the principal's condition continues to deteriorate. You go back months or a year later, and all of a sudden that shop that was full of all this equipment and inventory is, is suddenly bare, and you find out that, that either the principal or someone else you know, sold all those assets, notwithstanding your security interest, and it's not always the easiest thing to go back and chase after the the purchaser because you end up having to litigate and uh, it can be very uh, very challenging to do. Um, as Mike mentioned before too, also if you've got something where you have to hold it to perfect your security interest, then you're talking about storage costs. And then last, uh, lastly, those, those fun ones where your collateral has to be fed, um, that's always a good one, or crops. Uh, or other things that have a very short lifespan. So th those are the most challenging type of collateral that, that we see, and hopefully we don't have to get down to that level. Uh, I'm going to turn it back over to Mike. Okay, so we're going to talk about enforcement. And basically the, the enforcement of the collateral demand, you know, you've made the demand, they haven't provided it, now what do you do? Uh, typically, uh, the council will use either injunctive relief or specific performance to try to enforce the collateral demand provision. And, you know, we, we found, as I mentioned earlier, we found about 16 cases over the course of the last six, seven months that dealt with the surety's attempt to enforce their collateral demand provision. And of those cases, nine were, uh, the relief was granted in, and six of them the relief was denied in. And so, in other words, you know, the, the surety made a demand, and the demand was either ignored or refused, and the surety went to court, filed a suit uh, to, to get injunctive relief or specific performance, and the court denied that. Uh, there were, there's, a, there's a number of reasons, primarily in those cases, what you will see is the court finding that uh, there was no uh, showing or sufficient showing of irreparable harm. And basically, under the irreparable harm um, element of injunctive relief, you, you basically have to show that the relief you're requesting is, if it's not granted, that there'll be a harm that can't be compensated in money damages. And so, you know, the courts will look at this and say, well, you're, you're demanding money, and they're not paying you the money, so you want the money. That's economic. That's, that's, that's damages in money. So, you know, you're not showing irreparable harm. Uh, but, but, you know, that's, that's something that, you know, your outside counsel will have to deal with. There's a couple of takeaways from these cases, though, that I wanted to, 
touch on that, that um, the claims folks uh, should be aware of. One is delay. Uh, in two of the cases, the issue was cited by the court that the surety delayed in seeking to enforce its, um, its rights under the collateral demand provision. And one court cited the, uh, the, old, the old equity maxim that uh, equity aids the vigilant and not the, uh, the party who slumbers on its rights. So you don't want to be slumbering on your rights. In one of the cases, it was only six months. The other was about a year and a half. And basically, the court's saying, "Look, if you, you know, if you're going to wait around and delay in enforcing your rights, then that says to me, as the judge, that that this, you know, that, that you're not really looking at irreparable harm. And so they'll use uh, the courts will will use delay against you if they can. Um, where the other another case had, you know, you've got to be careful with the GAI. The language sometimes in the provisions will say." You know, hey, we agree that the surety, if, if the surety has to move to enforce this, the surety is entitled to injunctive relief. Or the surety, um, uh, you know, it, it, we agree that there is irreparable harm. And the court, one of the courts in these recent decisions faced with that language said, you know, uh, that doesn't bind the courts. We, we look at this and, and we determine if the right exists. And if it does, we'll enforce it. If it doesn't, we won't. And what you put in your contract is really not going to make any difference. And that's that's what one of the cases uh, held. The other, uh, the final point on it is, um, you know, it's just sometimes it's difficult depending on the jurisdictions that you're in. And in a lot of jurisdictions, and there's a lot of cases out there that say the surety is entitled to enforce the, these provisions and uh, entitled to specifically enforce entitled injunctive relief, but uh, there are just some courts that are really stingy with it. And one court in one of these cases the motion for, for enforcement for injunctive relief was unopposed. I mean, the, the indemnitors did not oppose the motion, and the court still denied it. <laughs> I, feel, I feel bad for that outside well, counsel. Well, you know, it just, it just shows, the, it shows the, you know, the mindset of the court that basically, you know, you've got to go a long way to, to establish uh, the right to injunctive relief in some jurisdictions. So, uh, so those, those are my thoughts on the, enfor on the enforcement side. Cindy, you want to wrap up? Yeah, let me wrap up, and I'm going to have to go through this real quickly, but uh, when the principal files for bankruptcy, um, you're, you're in a, a whole new set of rules. So the bankruptcy code very broadly defines what is property of the bankruptcy estate, and most, most times what you're, you're holding in collateral is going to be considered uh, property of the bankrupt estate. So operate under that assumption until you find out otherwise. And that matters because the bankruptcy code uh, puts an automatic stay on commencing any action or continuing any action against the debtor or the debtor's property. So as a surety, you want to be very careful that you don't start, start taking steps again with the collateral that's going to cause you to be found to be in violation of the automatic stay because you can actually have sanctions imposed against you. Now, if you didn't know about the bankruptcy because the surety, did, I mean, the surety wasn't told, which uh, unfortunately happens more often than, than we like, you're not going to necessarily be found to be in willful violation of the stay, but that doesn't mean that you can continue to go forward with uh, trying to secure that collateral. Now, that doesn't mean that you're, you're completely tied. Uh, there's a way to go into the court and seek relief from the automatic stay if you have a security interest in certain property uh, that you may be able to get relief from that automatic stay to be able to go pursue uh, 
taking that collateral and disposing of it to um, reimburse the surety, but that's going to arise in a case that where you have a security interest and that security interest actually, there's value to that security interest as opposed to being sort of a, you know, third creditor on something that uh, there's, you know, no equity in property. So all that's going to have to factor into whether it makes sense for you to go to try and um, seek relief from the automatic stay. Now, typically, if, say if you have a security interest in a piece of equipment, uh, the debtor is going to be able to be allowed to continue using that equipment in the ordinary course of its business. Say a construction contractor is going to be able to keep using that. They're just not going to be allowed to dispose of it without bankruptcy court approval. So uh, using it during the course of the bankruptcy is still okay. Uh, cash collateral, that's going to be a different uh, thing. Under the bankruptcy code, there's more restrictions on the debtor's use. Uh, generally, if, if the debtor, uh, if, the, if the surety has a security interest in that cash collateral, uh, the surety is going to have to either give its consent or the debtor is going to have to go get a court order subject to the surety's objection as to how to use that cash collateral. You know, perfect example of that is um, bonded contract funds. And typically what you'll see is that the surety and the principal uh, come to an agreement about how those funds can be used. Obviously, the surety is not going to have an objection if those funds are used to pay bonded subcontractor and supplier claims because that's going to go toward mitigating the surety's loss. However, the surety may object if the debtor is trying to use those funds for other purposes that doesn't uh, minimize the surety's exposure. Uh, letters of credit are actually a very good thing to have when there's a bankruptcy because those are generally not considered to be property of the debtor's estate. They're issued by a lender, so the surety is typically free to go over, go out and um, call upon those letters of credit and get that collateral without having to go through the automatic stay issues and or seeking the court's permission. So that's probably the best one to have in that circumstance. Um, and finally, you know, the issue of holding on to the collateral when the surety doesn't have actual claims at that time but has risk. Um, there's a long discussion of that, and since we're out of time here, but the law of commercial surety and miscellaneous bonds, uh, there's a chapter that Mike wrote with, uh, with George Backrack of our office about um, some of the, the ways you may be able to figure out a way to hold on to those uh, that collateral uh, because your your risk is still out there. So we're going to have to wrap it up now, and um, Mike's going to hit some buttons so we can open it up for questions. Yeah, just to close out, we before we go into the question and answer, just want to remind everyone that the next uh, edition of Surety Today will be Monday, July 11th at uh, 1230 Eastern Time using the same call-in number, participation code, and PIN. The topic will be the surety and the federal government. Um, upcoming events, the Surety Claims Institute is uh, June 22nd, 24th in Newport, Rhode Island. And I think most things are kind of down for the summer. The Northeast Surety Fidelity Claims Conference will be September 21st, 24th. So again, thank you everybody for, uh, for calling in and let me um, open up the lines here. Hi, hi, this is Larry Jotner. Can you hear me? Mike?